0: Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week, Associate Editor Gary Ilmenin gleefully ventured forth from his snow-swamped home in Wisconsin to Austin, Texas, where he had the opportunity to take the all-new Indian Sport Chief for a long ride. The new Sport Chief is a slimmer faster cruiser, and as its name implies, it has a definite sporting side to it. Have you looked at the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa yet? It's one of the most iconic sport bikes ever. It's now faster and the most technologically advanced Hayabusa ever. Check it out in person at your local Suzuki dealer now, or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. In our second segment, Associate Editor TJ Adams chats with Steve Sims. He's a well-known motivational speaker, coach, and author. Prior to that, Steve was best known as the sky's the limit fixer, who provided elite concierge services to the world's wealthiest and most influential people. He laughingly describes those 25 years as spending billionaires' money to give the more interesting cocktail hour stories. He's a serious motorcycle rider also, and he has a fascinating set of stories to tell. So sit back and prepare to be entertained. We love your feedback. Please send us your comments and suggestions at producer at motorcycling.com. And if you like motos and friends, hit the subscribe button.
1: It was a just a great great trip to go down there and ride that Sport Chief and uh it great weather boy 91 degrees according to some of the local reports down there the day we rode whereabouts
2: was it that you were riding
1: in Austin Texas
2: Oh wow okay beautiful beautiful Yeah so you got to ride the the newly launched Indian Sport Chief, is that correct?
1: Yeah, right.
2: And uh, what what's different about that from, you know, the sort of the, the current model?
1: It looks like uh, the components that were really uh, ramped up are the kinds of components that I think some owners of uh, the Standard Chief or the Chief Bobber might look at upgrading to at some point uh, with their bike that they already have. Uh, So basically it's it's a factory upgrade to the uh, like the the Chief Bobber. Um, The KYB uh, inverted front fork is uh, you know really a nice nicely handling piece of equipment to have on there. Uh, Very responsive uh, but not overly harsh in terms of the ride it gives. Uh, Brembo brakes front and rear uh four four piston calipers and then the fox uh spring rate adjustable uh piggyback shocks on the back uh Pirelli Night Dragon tires which I was really really impressed with when you get this okay. bike out on those uh, hilly roads uh outside of Austin uh the thing handles like a much lighter uh you know, almost like a, almost like a sport bike in some ways, in in terms of how responsive it is and how how well it holds the road.
2: Wow, that's that's quite a testament. Were you riding it one up or two up?
1: Uh, just one up, and um, I had the Solo Gunfighter saddle on mine. There's there's actually four seat options, including a, a double seat. And okay. then uh, a couple of seats to allow for some adjustment in ride height as well.
2: Oh wow! Okay. And yeah. and what's the the sort of the thing behind the gunfighter seat? Is that is it just looks or or is it sort of lowered or or, or what's that about?
1: It, I, well, it, it does have a really nice look to it and the texture of it. It it's um, a nice scooped saddle that drops right down into that valley between the top of the frame rails and the top of the fender that loops up, and uh, it, it brings the seat height down. I think the uh, unladen saddle height is only 27 inches, which, for me, with an unladen saddle <laughs> that that gets low to the ground anyway, um, that is really nice. It It allowed me to have both feet flat on the ground and for maneuvering the bike from the saddle, uh, that it works really well. And it's all day comfortable. We were out uh, pretty much all day in the heat, and it was comfortable for me all day.
2: Wow, that's awesome. So um, which engine is this bike using? It's using the standard Chieftain engine, or has it done something special to it?
1: This is with the uh, 116 cubic inch Thunderstroke, uh, air-cooled. Uh, with a six-speed, and it's kind of unique. These days anymore, I think most people just expect anything with that much displacement to be either air, oil, or liquid-cooled, but um, this one, the the engine as it comes uh, from the factory is straight-up air-cooled. There's no oil cooler and no radiator for liquid cooling, uh, the heads or, or the barrels, and uh, you know, that was one of the things that I, I did notice in riding in the kind of heat that it that we had that day uh, when there, we would be doing stops uh, for portions of the photo shoot and, and around town in Austin itself. Uh, as the day heated up, you could feel some heat coming up off that engine, even though it has rear cylinder deactivation uh, when the temperature reaches the right point. Um, so that was something that you know some other some other people noticed as well but for me it, you know being from northern from up here in Wisconsin the day we were riding in Austin when it was about 90 degrees or 91 degrees back here back at home in Wisconsin it was 18 degrees above 0 so i was not going to play <laughs> <laughs>
2: you're sitting there thinking, you know what, I'm going to remember this. This is nice and warm.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I, you know, I absolutely had no complaint about it. The one thing I I didn't mention in my review and that I noticed in the course of the ride was uh, the the two pipes, the header pipes come together uh, into a crossover and then split apart again into two mufflers, and the heat that comes from that exhaust pipe that is right behind your calf a couple of times when we were stopped and we were having the bikes idle uh, cuz we were taking turns for some of the photo shoot opportunities if if i let my my right leg just kind of slide off the foot peg and rest against that pipe my leg didn't stay there long because that little <laughs> heat shield just you know it allows a lot of heat to come through so uh that was the one thing about the uh, exhaust system uh where the heat shielding probably could be a little more extensive and maybe a little more effective but that's kind of a small a small matter once you get used to riding the bike and you know you're aware of it
3: sure
2: sure so um how how maneuverable was the bike is it, it does it do you feel the weight on it or is it relatively nimble
1: You know, when you're taking it up off the side stand, it doesn't have a center stand. When you take it up off the side stand, uh, like with any bike, you you feel its bulk. Uh, It's about 675 pounds altogether, road ready. But when you're out on the road, um, around town in downtown uh, Austin, which was interesting because there was tremendous cooperation uh, from local law enforcement in the city of Austin, and even out on the countryside, when we went out to the hill country, with law enforcement uh, helping to keep the ride safe, closing closing off some parts of road for us and uh, some intersections. Wow. So, you know, I have to my hats off to local uh, local law enforcement and to the organizers uh, of the event because they even had a fully equipped. EMT in one of the support vehicles that was along in case you know anything happened Um, so that that was nice to know that they had really planned this thing out and had a beautiful route Um, so up in the hill country where we really got a chance to check out the handling uh, this bike was really a pleasant surprise you don't feel that 675 pounds uh, I dove into some corners probably a little faster than I should have, and the thing, the thing kept me from getting into any serious trouble. Uh, the foot peg came down. I was sliding foot peg around some of the corners, and uh, it felt very, very planted, very stable. And you could sure. come out of the corners. Um, you know, one of the corners that really kind of caught my attention was a downhill left hander. The the Hairpin. It was a hairpin corner that was off camber and had an uphill exit. And right. I came in a little hot and uh, <laughs> probably you know, uh, probably could have come in maybe 10 miles an hour slower for a real comfortable turn. But as I got into the, the apex of the corner, it was no problem. Uh, foot peg came down, but the thing tracked like it was on rails and I could roll the th- throttle on coming out of the corner and going uphill and accelerate hard. And it was very comfortable doing it, uh, no no stepping out on the front end. The, the forks kept the uh, front wheel right where you wanted it to be tracking-wise, and there was no tendency to have any side slip from the rear end either. So uh, with right. the suspension components on, on the uh, Sport Chief, I think most riders will find it, very very capable and feeling much lighter in slow speed corners like that, relatively low speed, and out on the long uh, sweeping corners where speeds were much higher. Same thing was true. It it held the line I wanted it to hold. And it was very very responsive that way.
2: Oh, that's great. As soon as you introduce you know the name Sport into any any model, you know, as consumers we're expecting obviously good engine performance and, and nice, you know, pretty nimble handling. And it sounds as though it's got both of those was, was the engine going back to the engine. Was it, was it pretty responsive? I mean, I presumably had different riding modes in it uh, so that you could kind of, depending on the kind of riding that you were doing, you could, you could dial in certain amounts of power or certain amounts of response. Anyway, how was the, how did the engine actually feel?
1: Well, it does have three ride modes: tour, standard, and sport. And I,
2: okay, wow. I,
1: I never took it out of the standard mode because the the times when I really rolled the throttle on to let it all hang out, it I'll tell you, you better be hanging on with both hands when you do that with that 116 cubic inches of horsepower. And they don't give a horsepower figure, but they do give a torque figure. Sure. It's a, it produces 120 foot-pounds of torque at only 2,900 RPM. So Whoa. you don't have to find that engine up very much to start feeling <laughs> some real power getting to the rear wheel. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, it, and it, it's smooth power. Now, the, uh, my understanding is that there's a, a single engine speed balancer built in that okay. is designed not to completely muffle or eliminate the a little bit of engine vibration. It, there, there's a deliberate effort to let there be some engine pulsation sensation uh, in the in the bike, and you can feel it, but it's never objectionable. Um, it's not okay. like my my 1975 Honda CB500T, where <laughs> you know, if, if I had to pass another vehicle and, and really get that engine wound up, it would buzz so bad the mirrors would go out of adjustment. <laughs> You know, um, this machine, on the other hand, with all that power uh, and because you don't have to rev it up because all that that torque is delivered under under 3000 RPM, you can just let that engine lug and it'll pull you along in a hurry. So it's really easy to to, uh, handle and to get the kind of performance you want out of it. Um, sport mode. Like I said. I didn't even bother clicking into it because I was getting really comfortable with the standard mode. Uh, And frankly, you know, unless you you take it down to the, you know, do some amateur drag racing or whatever. um, I can't imagine that you would very often need to have sport mode because uh, in the standard ride mode, it's got plenty of power.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, I would imagine the sport mode is really, it's just a matter of responsiveness. So you've probably got a little bit more you know, instant response. But like you say, in these standard modes and especially on the street, you you know, usually you don't need that instant, instant snap, you know, with 120 120 foot pounds of torque. That's absolutely monster. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That thing's gonna.
2: That thing's going to, yeah. I mean, I, I I hope it came with some Velcro so that you could attach yourself to the seat a little bit better, you
1: know? Yeah. Uh, Well, (laughs) that's where that deep scoop seat was nice. You know, it keeps you planted on the bike. (laughs) Um, and the night dragon tires, those Pirellis, just really grab the pavement. I, like I said, even in the heat, um, really? where you might even yeah. expect, that, uh, you know, if the if the tires are getting really hot, maybe they'd on car joints and stuff in the blacktop, you might expect it to slide around a little bit. But um, I never experienced any of that. It was, you know, it stayed planted and stayed right on on the line that you wanted going through corners. So very predictable and, and fun to ride.
2: Really excellent, excellent. Yeah, there's not a lot more that you can really ask for a, for a bike in terms of you know sporting performance than than something that really you know gets going as quickly as that and and handles you know gives gives the rider some confidence. So what what about things like uh, amenities? I mean, I assume it does come with cruise control and you know those kind of usual things. Did it have have that kind of stuff on it?
1: Well, you know, um, the electronics on it are are really pretty sophisticated. Uh, oh. What I liked about the the pod, there's a four inch uh, TFT pod on there, and the mode that I used shows. You know, this is my old school background. I I kept it in the mode where it creates the image of an analog speedometer and tachometer, and right. and there are some other readouts as well. Uh, yeah, and there was a cruise setting on the right handlebar, if I recall correctly. But most of the roads that we were on, you really didn't get a chance to click it into cruise. You know, we didn't hit any of the interstate highways or any of that,
0: uh, sure. which was
1: fine to me because we had a ball in the hill country there west of Austin around Lake Travis. And uh, it was a perfect opportunity for for the bike to be shown off in a really great light in terms of how well it handles, uh, powerful brakes. I mean, if, right. if you don't have enough braking power with those Brembo's, then you probably ought to get a MotoGP bike.
2: <laughs> because,
1: <laughs> um, right. the, the thing can really haul down when you need to, and it doesn't, there's no fish tailing, um, you know, with the ABS and all, all the, features that the thing has for control it's it's really an easy bike considering that it is pretty heavy it's a it's a pretty prominent bike but i actually think people with relatively limited riding experience could get comfortable on it pretty quickly
2: really that's impressive you know in street terms unless you're on the track weight is is actually a very good thing it really helps a motorcycle feel you know planted you know to the road so uh so as long as it's well balanced and it sounds as though it is then that that sounds like a a good thing actually it sounds really sounds very easily rideable
1: exactly uh when you have that low seat height uh even for people who are vertically challenged like me uh it <laughs> is very easy to handle around the parking lot when you're getting into parking situations and whatnot uh, and that is, for a lot of riders, I think that's one of the things that is more intimidating than even getting out on the road and handling corners and what what may come along. Uh, one of the things that gave me a good opportunity to see what, what that suspension is really able to handle was in that hill country, there's a lot of ranches, and they have cattle guards, as they're called, built into the roads up in the hills, and those are, you know, these steel grates that are in the roadbed to keep cattle from being able to meander along the roads if they get out of the fences, if there are any. And one of them in particular was like four inches below the level of the pavement. So you dropped into it, and you got pounded coming out of it. And wow. that suspension soaked it up. Uh, it really didn't disturb the line. I, I was able to slow down a little bit, but it was kind of, pucked away, out of sight, uh, I think it was around a left-hand corner. You come over a little rise, and there's a slight downhill, and there it is. And you really didn't have much time to adjust your speed, so you dropped into this thing. And the bike uh, with the midships pegs was nice because I, I kind of got my weight up off the saddle uh, on the pegs. And the, the suspension, though, soaked up that shock, very well went through that cattle guard and was able to resume on the on the blacktop without having the line of the bike changed or the ride of the bike really disrupted which was really a test
2: (laughs) yeah yeah that that sounds impressive okay all right so how about um you know for sort of longer distance type stuff was it was it pretty comfortable i mean was the handlebar and you know foot peg and seat relationship pretty good
1: well i did ask um dan peterson is one of the product uh leads on on the chief the sport chief and i did ask him about the ability to get either an adjustable riser or a riser that sweeps back more uh Overall, it was really comfortable, especially when you're first starting out. But as the day wore on a little bit, I started to feel, because, again, my arms aren't as long as, as some folks, uh, I asked him if there was going to be an option to get a riser that brings the bars back a couple of inches. And he said that at this point, they don't have anything planned. Uh, and an adjustable one, he said, could have some regulatory concerns. Um uh, there is the standard six or six and a half inch riser, and then a ten inch riser, which really would would have been, you know, a, a stretch for me. But I did see some of the other uh, bikes that were involved in the event did have the taller risers, and people seem to really like them. Uh, I think, you know, they, especially if they've had experience riding with uh, that that ergonomic situation in the past. Uh, for me. The, the bike was comfortable for all around, but I think if they did, again, for me and for riders uh, who have similar physique, probably uh, a, either a shorter, slightly shorter riser, maybe a 4-inch instead of a 6, or a riser that angles back over the instrument pod to bring the bars back a couple inches, maybe maybe that'll be something that'll be available in in the future. But otherwise, um, the ergonomics were very comfortable. The seat was great. Um, the only oddity that happened was on two occasions I noticed the seat had kind of popped up off the back fender, which is where it usually rides. And so I looked at it, and it had come up off of the stanchion that it uh, mounts to. It's like a single peg. And so I'd push it down till it clicked, and I could feel it click and hear it click and then uh one other time it had come loose again so uh it, i'm not sure exactly why that came loose we really didn't get into looking at it in any detail but it's you know one of those minor things it didn't cause any problems i wasn't even aware of it until after i was stopped so uh it wasn't like it created any problems for the during operation or anything but uh otherwise the seat was great
2: yeah, I think I think those uh, those rises typically the aftermarket takes care of that kind of thing. So, you know, we're all built very slightly differently. So, um, yeah. if you get into a situation, I, I'd be willing to bet that the aftermarket will come up for some, with, with something for that. But otherwise, yeah. it sounds like the yeah. bike the bike was really is really you know pretty comfortable for most people. So, do you feel confident that you could you could do some distance on it? You could put some uh, some luggage on and and go some distance.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, that was the kind of a ride where at cruising speed, at interstate speed, uh, vibration is not a real issue at all. Um, And uh, with the midships pegs, which I really prefer uh, as opposed to forward controls, it it was really perfect in that regard for me as well. Um, There's a quarter fairing on it uh that does take some of the wind blast down uh like I say we didn't do any interstate riding to speak of but um and it, the nice thing about the quarter fairing is even if it doesn't offer full body uh protection from you know bugs and and the wind itself at the size it is it's neutral in terms of buffeting from uh crosswind which we did have some of and when you meet large vehicles where you tend to get that wind blast ahead of a semi and what have you. Uh, oh,
2: yeah, 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 for sure.
1: The, the aerodynamic shape of it and uh, the the smaller profile of it uh, made it virtually invisible in terms of uh, any impact on moving the forks around or moving the bike around. So that was nice. It, it does provide a little bit of upper body protection. Uh, mine had the standard windscreen height. Uh, on it, but a shorter screen is available as an option, and a taller okay. screen uh, is available. And you can also get uh, flared edge screens that actually turn uh, turn the air a little more vertical so it, you get even less wind blast from uh, coming over the screen. So there are some options there. Oh,
2: sure. sure. okay. Sounds really, really nice. A really good sporting cruiser.
1: It really is. You know, and there's one thing that I don't think enough uh, attention is paid to about these bikes. The Indian, in its primary drive, is all gear drive, whereas the competition, uh, pretty much uh, as far as I could think of, other cruisers in its class have a chain, a duplex chain primary drive. Well, I've got a right. couple of bikes have the chain primary drive, and, you, you know, you have to eventually, uh, you've you got to be aware that that chain could break, whereas a gear primary drive has very low probability of you're ever going to have to do anything but change the oil in that primary drive. That feature goes all the way back to Charles B. Franklin's original 1921 Indian Chief design. And wow, <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing that, the, you know, that feature is preserved today. And uh, I think it's I think it's a real labor saver, I, I, I still worry about, every once in a while, I think about, well, what if my primary chain broke, and I, you've got to check the tension and all that, uh, and kind of keep an eye on a chain primary, whereas right. gear primary, there's nothing to adjust, no tension to worry about, just give it some fresh oil right. once in a while and keep on riding.
2: Well, especially if you're putting that much torque through it, then, uh, you know, it's not going to be a weak point, which is, so. Uh, so that's good. So overall, it sounds like you were you really like the bike. you were really impressed with it
1: Oh, absolutely. uh I think people who people who go for uh this model are going to be very well pleased uh there, there is room, like you say, for personalization uh both from uh Indian and I'm sure you're right about the aftermarket. It won't be long uh, and of course, a lot of the accessories that are available for the chief bobber and the other chief models in the line. We'll work with the sport chief as well.
2: Good. Okay. All right. Um, I guess last thing is: is uh, are you aware of the price? Have they announced that yet?
1: It was eighteen thousand nine ninety nine for the sport chief uh, with all the basic equipment uh, and in black, black smoke okay. color. Uh, ruby smoke is available, and that's five hundred dollars extra. Uh, stealth Gray, which is the only gloss finish. All of the other color options are in kind of a matte uh, finish. Okay. Uh, the Stealth Gray is a glossy finish, and that's $500 above the base. And then Spirit Blue Smoke uh, is $1,000 above the base price.
2: Less than 20 grand dollars It sounds like you get a lot of bikes for your money.
1: Yeah, you really do. Um, and I, I think even accessorizing it, to go probably over that $20,000 mark. Uh this bike is built to go for a long time. And if, you right. know, if a person only wants to have one motorcycle in the garage or uh only has room for one motorcycle in the garage, which uh, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking <laughs> about, um but they want a cruiser style bike, this this would be an excellent one. I mean, it it's performance is is more than what your average rider would ever really need I'm sure you know it's it's very right. and yet it's tractable
2: all right well thank you Gary I really appreciate um hearing your insight into uh, the Indian sport chief it sounds sounds like a really great bike
1: it really is I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk about it a little bit
2: all right thanks Gary talk to you soon
1: all right take care
0: In this second segment, Associate Editor T.J. Adams chats with Steve Sims. He's a well-known motivational speaker, coach, and author. Prior to that, Steve was best known as the sky's the limit fixer, who provided elite concierge services to the world's wealthiest and most influential people he laughingly describes those 25 years as spending billionaires' money to give them more interesting cocktail hour stories. He's a serious motorcycle rider also, and he has a fascinating set of stories to tell. So sit back and prepare to be entertained. Reputation precedes it, unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the Hayabusa gives riders a comprehensive collection of electronic rider aids like the bi-directional quickshifter, the drive mode selector, launch control system and the cruise control system that simultaneously increases performance, comfort and rideability. While its advanced analog and TFT LCD display panel connects you to the ride like never before, blending over 20 years of tradition with innovation. Plus, the Hayabusa comes in three new eye-catching color combinations and it offers a full suite of available Suzuki Genuine Accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit SuzukiCycles.com to learn more.
3: I think the whole idea of uh, motorcycling and bikers in general, I think it's changed. There's been a change for many, many years. In fact, let's be blunt, we are the majority um, of of how bikers feel. And look, we're not all one percenters out there to try and do harm. Um, but uh, it, it is kind of funny how it's getting seen more and more. And the, old, the old ideas of, hey, if you want to treat cheap transport, you bought a motorbike. So they're no longer cheap transport anymore.
4: Those days for me, my motorcycle was my transport. That's how I got to work. And I, anywhere I had to go in the evenings, it was that my motorcycle was my means of transport. Whereas now it's it's all pleasure, I'm pleased to say.
3: Yeah, it, it's the same for most people. I think they start off, especially in England, because you could get your motorcycle license before you could get your car license. So a lot of people gain their independence from getting their little Yamaha fizzy and their little 50cc thing. Um, and then, of course, a lot of people went oh, car jumping into that. Um, but I, I don't know why. Um, I really don't know why. But I ended up just staying on the bike and enduring the uh, the beautiful British summers of rain, um, <laughs> and just just stuck with it. And then, then it became then it became somewhat of an addiction. Um, mm. And I moved, I moved from England in my very early twenties to Hong Kong. Um, oh, wow, and yeah, I you know, just to give you the, 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 the little nugget. You know, I was a I left school early at the age of 15. My college counselor told me not to even bother, just go and get a job. So that's that's the so I never went to college. <laughs> um, but you know, the typical kind of aggravated entrepreneur, I saw everyone else making money and I wasn't so. I went off to try and make money and I ended up getting a stockbroker trainee position in Hong Kong. It lasted one day. Oh, right. Um,
4: that was all sounding uh, so good for a moment.
3: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it sounded good on the flight over there, but, you know, they realized that you couldn't teach this thing how to do anything, so they fired me uh, after one day. Um, but the dumb thing was, because that actually brought me over from England, I got severance package of like six weeks. So I was like, oh, excellent. So I felt like I was rich until I realized I was in the most expensive country in the planet, Hong Kong at the time, um, and that money was going fast. So I just just wanted to try and find other jobs that would surround me with affluent people to try and answer the problem, why am I poor and you're not? You know, why have you got opportunities and I've not? Why have you got money and I've not? So I went out on that. But the motorcycling, I even missed it in Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong's very, very small um, and not a great place for bikes. But then I moved down to Thailand when uh, the British handover went back to China. And now I'm yes. in Thailand, and I had to get around chaotic, manic cities. And when I was working down there, if you had one appointment in a day, you were done. You know, because that was the car ride there stuck in traffic, got to what you had done. But if I had a <laughs> motorbike, I could do three. So again, bought myself a crappy little 250 bike and you know, just, just continued. But then I noticed that motorcycling is great for the exhilaration and fun and the style and the fashion. But as I've got arrogantly more successful, doing a lot more, traveling a lot more, I've actually discovered it's the only place in the planet where I can be left alone. Um, you on a plane, you got Wi-Fi. You get you get Wi-Fi on a yacht. You can be in the middle of the ocean and someone can bloody phone you, uh, and they can do that now on a plane. But on a motorcycle, I can't answer the call. I can't pick up the laundry. I can't give you a lift to wherever you want to go. I'm on my own. In fact, yes. tomorrow I've got a I'm keynote in a very large event in San Diego. And they're like, oh, we'll fly you down from Los Angeles. It's only a three-hour drive. But, you know, they've got like a little hopper that will, hey, we'll fly you down. I'm like, nope, I'm going to ride my bike. For three hours down there and for three hours coming back, I get to talk to myself. Yes, you'll be in your own headspace. And you can't get that anywhere else today, can you?
4: No. And also it's it's polarizing. You have to focus on your riding. It takes you into that
3: that really uh, one plane situation you are so right I suppose scuba diving's similar I don't know <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm not doing that too many bloody sharks <laughs> me neither um,
4: yeah it's the wrong environment for humans
3: <laughs> but it is good that we get we get to focus because if we don't focus on motorcycles obviously we fall off and then that's never fun um <laughs> but yeah you get to you get to eliminate everything else you're thinking about and if you've got any problems you can't be thinking about them when you're riding the bike. So when you get off the bike, I've realized that everything in my head suddenly lines up in order of priority. And that shit that was bothering me before the bike ride is not in that lineup. So I, I love motorcycles too two will forever. In fact, I am scared of that time when I can't ride bikes. So I'm very pleased when I get to hang out with like buddies And thankfully they're older than me and still bloody (laughs) overtaking me on the track. Damn you Ken. Um, But uh, you know, at least I, uh, at least I think, well, okay, I've still got, I've still got some good years to play. I think it's
4: one of today's issues without sounding too philosophical, that people don't give themselves time to think about themselves and be with themselves. It's just all go the whole time. And I think uh, that is part of the motorcycling habit that you just have a break.
3: Yeah, I don't want to get on a soapbox because I actually I, I do that a lot. In fact, I wrote I wrote a book recently on it. I'm not to plug it, but and it was all based on the fact that we are getting really bad conversationalists.
4: Oh, really? No, I want you to plug it. This is the sort of thing I want to find out about. I mean,
3: I've I'm doing an interview after you, so I have a copy of it here. It's called Go for Stupid, The Art of Achieving Ridiculous Goals. But during COVID Interesting, yeah. During COVID, we didn't have any conversation. We couldn't get out we couldn't connect. Now bearing in mind, we still had FaceTime, Zoom, phone call. We still could talk to people, but everyone was bitching and moaning about being able to connect. Mm. And then we had various um, conversations, even protests that happened during COVID. Me too, Asian hate, Black Lives Matter. But at the same time, we also invented the cancel culture. So we were actually we knew we had to have conversations about me too or black lives matter but we were terrified to do that in case anyone took a clip it and then shoved it on uh, you know tiktok or something and tried yeah, to cancel true. your career so we got scared we got terrified of having those conversations we needed to have but then it went a little bit further we stopped having those conversations with ourselves now i swear If you videoed anybody inside their helmet when they're riding on a long journey, that'd be locked up because we all talk to ourselves or (laughs) sing to ourselves. I constantly will literally just chat with myself in the helmet and get me on board with my goals and aspirations. Yet so many of us doubt ourselves that we won't actually address the biggest problem we've got, which is us, which is in our innate fears. So I love that chance of being on a motorbike so I can go, Hey, we're going to do this. Is everyone on board? I, say, I sound like a nutter, but in today's world, we've got to do it.
4: So do you think it's the fear that stops people from doing things, progressing in life generally?
3: Sadly, no, sadly, no. I'll play a little game with you. Um, do you do you have a car or a truck? Um, a truck. You have a truck. Okay, what truck do you have? It's a Dodge
4: Ram Dually. Do you like it? Thousand five hundred. Um, not particularly. It's to do a job. It tows us around. We live in an RV, so
3: <laughs> it's an animal. Okay, there you go. So it serves a purpose, okay? Yes. Um, do you want to buy Elon Musk's Tesla uh, Cybertruck?
4: <laughs> that's an interesting concept actually i've been looking at that
3: <laughs> would you like to buy um, it not really no okay so you have a truck as a as a utility yeah not really interested in buying the cyber truck okay fair enough did you see elon musk when he actually unveiled the cyber truck
4: no i didn't i have to admit
3: did you hear about it yes i did all right So it made media all over the planet. It did, yeah. Right, okay. So it caught the attention of everybody. Everyone, whether you watched it or you didn't watch it, you knew that it was unveiled, correct? Oh, yes, yes. Right. What were the headlines the following day after it was unveiled? Give me a reminder. So during the unveiling, he had a truck that shared no commonality with anything ever produced before. It's the weirdest looking thing in the planet. It's got a different drivetrain than any other truck. Basically, has got four wheels and a steering wheel. And that's basically the only similarity with anything else on the road. He managed to capture the attention of the planet. Even if you weren't watching it, you knew about the unveiling. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was everywhere. And it managed to sell. Yeah. And it sold out of every pre-order in the two-hour unveiling that he did. Before he'd even started building the bloody thing, he, he had advance sold out of every single slot that he had available.
4: So how did he do that?
3: Well, because he grabs your attention and he knows how to engage you with, with doing things differently. But here's the thing. During the event, they were showing different parts of the vehicle. One of the things that he said was, our glass is bulletproof. So he got this actor to actually throw a stone at the glass, at the side glass, and it shattered. Now, he had managed to sell out of everything, but the following day, rather than us revering someone for grabbing the attention of the world, what did we do? We laughed at him. We mocked him that his bulletproof glass wasn't wasn't resistant and had shattered. You see, you asked me, are we frightened of trying things? We're not frightened. We're actually terrified of people laughing at us. Today, the power of being laughed at is holding us back. Yet everyone that we revere, Elon Musk, Larry Page, Steve Jobs, Disney, Ford, Edison, anyone that we revere literally had protests and riots against them for daring to stand out and do things differently. And I think in today's economy, we need to stop caring about the people laughing at us and just go for our own goals because everyone that we revere, they, they do it on a daily basis. And we go, oh, they're gods. We want to be just like them. But we're terrified of trying something and being laughed at. We're not scared of failing because let's be serious. As a motorcyclist, how do you know how to handle your bike well? It's usually when you've fallen off and you go, oh. When you've fallen off or
4: you've done, yes. Yeah, you find out where your limitations are. (laughs)
3: And then then you get better and you get better. and Maybe you get another knock and you get better and better. Maybe you come off track. So you're always learning. It's not the failing that's the problem. It's it's the the education you get from it and ignoring it. But today, too many people out there that usually don't matter have too loud a voice to poke fun at you. And I think today's economy, we're actually fighting to try things, not because of the education of the failure, but because of people ridicule and laughing at us.
4: That's probably true. I'm just sort of processing that. It's not actually the failure and whether you can bounce back. It's It's being made a fool of.
3: I was in London with a a very famous entrepreneur. Um, We'll just call him his first name, Richard, and leave it at that. Um, And we walked into a party, and he literally walked in, looked around at the room, and he went, great, it's a room full of failures. And when when he said that, I was like, oh, shit, that's not very nice. And he looked at me and realized that he'd kind of caught me off guard. And he went, no, 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 you don't realize it. Everyone in this room is a serial failure, but they didn't allow it to define them. They allowed it to refine them. And that was his words. And I was like, that's brilliant. And let's yeah, be serious. Every successful person on the planet is a serial failure. And you've only got to get it right once.
4: It's true. Yes. And then people forget the failures.
3: Oh, it was just the failures were nothing more than education.
4: Mm. And how many people wish they tried then when they look back?
3: Yeah, they wish they'd tried and they'd wish they'd not listened to the idiots that turned around and went, oh, you can't do that. You're an idiot. Oh, and done all that kind of stuff. You really need to make sure you're in a room full of people that support you and don't laugh at you.
4: Well, you now mix in with people who are sort of high worth clients. Lots of your clients are the people who have um, made successes by failing, if you like.
3: Yeah, but that's because I put myself in that room. You know, as a bricklayer from East London, I remember one day I was in Leytonstone, and I'm in this biker bar, and I suddenly realised that everybody in the bar was broke. And I suddenly realised that I was just another cog in that broke wheel. Um, And so I went out to make sure that, you know, I had to change the room I was in. I had to surround myself with affluent people, successful people, challenging people, people that wouldn't settle. And I remember as a youngster, i just settle for bloody anything. And then the first thing I realized was, you've got to change your standards. You know, if you get a bad drink, send it back. If, you, if your food's lukewarm, send it back. If you're having a bad conversation, change the conversation. But I realized that it all starts off with those standards. They don't cost you anything. But they are important to have. So, how did you manage to meet people who spurred you forward? So, I wanted to. Um, it, it's a. It's a. It's funny, but I ended up launching a very, very affluent and high-end concierge firm. I was like the Mister Fix It for very wealthy people. Oh, right. never Yeah, I never wanted to do that. You know, I've I've been on basically every red carpet from from Macau to the Oscars. Um, And it was never anything I wanted to do. And I've always joked that I was never in the business I was in. My job was to have a conversation with someone that owns something like a country. My job was to be able to have a a two-hour lunch with them and go, hey, how do you get the opportunities you get? How do you look at investments? How do you recruit people? How do you trust? How do you outsource? And I wanted to have those conversations. So if it meant that, hey, I had to get you a drum lesson with Guns and Moses, or I had to get you on stage with your favorite rock band, or get you a walk-on role in a Hollywood blockbuster, then, okay, I'll do that, because I just want the breakfast, the lunch, or the dinner. And so I wanted to challenge myself, because let's be serious, in the 80s and the 90s, we didn't have Instagram to show us how inadequate our life was. <laughs> and so, and also, if you think about the 80s and 90s, the word entrepreneur, that was a dirty word. It
4: was indeed, yes. Yeah, yeah. if
3: you were an entrepreneur, it meant that you couldn't get a real job and you were, you probably were ducking selling. and diving. <laughs> you were selling second-hand car audios that were stolen out of back of your van. You know, that's what an entrepreneur meant. Now, it, you're star status. You know, you say to the kids in the 80s, 90s and the 2000s, what do you want? They wanted to be an actor or a rock star. Now they want to be an entrepreneur because all the That's people true, that run yes. the planet are entrepreneurs. So I just wanted to get into these conversations. So whatever I needed to do, get you into a restaurant that apparently was sold out, get you a meet and greet backstage, on stage, whatever it took, as long as I got that. And of course, I would charge them handsomely. So. I was making good money at the time as well, but my goal was always, always, always to basically do what we're doing now. Have a, have a podcast before there was podcasts and interview affluent, successful people on how they handled and and made success.
4: Yeah. It's a very interesting fact. You can have all the money in the world, but you still have to be able to run life. You have to be able to, as you say, delegate, run your different homes, find people to book flights and to keep you on that that in that lifestyle and and on that sort of train
3: yeah absolutely you know people think that once you get there all your problems start no they just get bigger um and the (laughs) funny thing is and you hit it on the head delegation was probably one of the biggest things i learned from affluent people um because you're right you know they end up with a yacht a business homes staff Mm they have to delegate, they have to give people responsibility, which then teaches us, well, okay, if you're gonna delegate, how do you employ people? What do you look for when you're taking someone on to suddenly go, well, okay, you're gonna look after those houses or that project or that charity. Or trust my- must be a big part of that,
4: trusting somebody to do it and trusting somebody to be I think trust professional. is,
3: you, you, look, it's a first date. You can't trust someone the first time you meet them. Um, so trust is definitely something that, that is earned. But the daft thing is a lot of people recruit people based on their resume. Now, I don't care if you can you know, work a widget and you're great on Excel spreadsheets and you know every bloody Apple and Microsoft program there is. I care that we share the same vision. We have the same belief. We're doing the same thing for the same goal, for the same challenge. If you recruit, and this was probably my biggest lesson, it was a Steve Jobs one. If you focus on culture of the person, any weakness they have, you can send them on a six-week course. But if they don't share the same belief that you have, Sooner or later, it's going to become toxic. You can't teach them that. They've you got cannot to... teach them the same culture. It's like going up to someone that hates motorcycles and trying to convince them to love motorcycles. You, you, you're you going against the grain. Why do it?
4: Interesting. So what's been the, would you say, or well, just give us some examples of some of the unusual um, sort of introductions you've put forward or the unusual requests
3: that you've had? So... <laughs> Anyone in business knows today it's a transactional society and you have to avoid it like the plague, because if you are basically completing a transaction and Amazon's just waiting to take your job, so <laughs> people have always said to me, Hey, is there ever been a request you've received from your, your flamboyant clients around the planet that you've not been able to achieve? And of course, arrogantly, my answer has always been no because I've never given a client what they asked for. And we always used to have this saying, okay, we've got this request. How can we make it stupid? Not impossible. How can we make it stupid? How can we make it laughable? What's the most ridiculous thing we can do? So I probably one of my most famous ones, and you may have already heard of this, but maybe your listeners haven't was I had a client that wanted to have a dining experience in Florence. Um, He was with his fiance and he was going to get to meet the mother-in-law and father-in-law. So he wanted to kind of show off how powerful and connected he was by producing this amazing experience now notice that it wasn't a restaurant reservation or an amazing restaurant that he wanted he wanted a dining experience okay so for that reason um how could we make that absolutely ridiculous so i closed down the academia de galleria museum the famous museum in florence that houses michelangelo's david I set a table up of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. And then halfway through that pasta at nine o'clock at night, I brought in a local entertainer to serenade them that just happened to be Andrea Bocelli. So that was the, that was the kind of things that I would do. So someone would give me a nugget of a request and then I would go, well, okay, how can I make that more ridiculous? I had a client that was a mad fan of the rock band journey when they were doing their revival concert series and he wanted front row seats and he wanted to go backstage and meet them. What I had him done was I had him pulled up on stage during the concert and he sang three songs as the temporary lead singer of the rock band in San Diego about four or five years ago. So I always looked to whatever the request was and then try to amplify it with my magic so that I would give them something that they didn't think was possible.
4: Good heavens. That is astounding. I did hear you were called the real-life Wizard of Oz, actually, and now that sounds very apt.
3: Yeah, that <laughs> was like – that that. I hated that. Um, <laughs> that was Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine did a big article on me, um, and they called me the real-life Wizard of Oz, and I had a friend of mine phone me up, and I was in bed, and he phoned me up, and he's like, Wizard! And I'm like, what are you on about? He's like, Wizard! They're like, oh, all right, <laughs> this isn't funny. Wait, you're the Wizard And he kept going, I'm like, you're annoying me. He's like, you haven't seen it yet, have you? And I'm like, no, what is it? And Forbes did an eight-page article kind of expose on the most connected man you've never heard of. And oh, they am going have the, a look at that. <laughs> yeah, they called me the real-life Wizard of Oz. And I'll be honest with you, it killed probably about 30% of my business in one morning. Oh, really? I had this amazing article with me, with Elon Musk and Richard Branson and John, all these people um, but all of the real powerful people that you don't know, the real the real controllers, the real powers around the world, they had always pretended that it was their own power that had got them to do things. Oh, so when all of a sudden- The cover was blown. Yeah. So people, I literally had clients say to me, Steve, you know, I've loved what you've done, but I can't use you anymore because my friends are going to know that it's you and not me. So <laughs> literally I had a lot of clients just- uh, went by the wayside. Now, luckily, um, at that time, I had been approached by Simon and Schuster to write my first book, Bluefish, In The Art of Making Things Happen. I didn't think it would sell. Thankfully, it absolutely flew off the shelves in about nine different languages, launched me into a, a coaching, training and speaking career. So incredible! it yeah. was good timing.
4: This is kind of helping people to achieve goals, even if they think or you think the goal is ridiculous. Do you ever think anything's too ridiculous?
3: Oh, the more ridiculous, the better. Um, (laughs) You see, here's here's a little funny thing for you. If I say to you, hey, let's do this. It's impossible, but, you know, we're going to go for it. We're going to break through the impossible. We're going to make the impossible possible because we know impossible stands for I'm possible. Now, when you talk like that, you get very rigid and very kind of like angry and kind of, let's go, and you charge. But if I say to you, hey, I just got this request. Let's make it stupid you immediately smile and new ones go off in your head. And I'm it's sure more relaxing. A... Yeah. But now what happens is you start dreaming, you start playing and the five-year-old comes out. How can I make this stupid? How can I make this ridiculous? And every goal starts with a ridiculous point and then you come back from it. And I think that's what more people need to do today. We need to dare to dream. Forget Impossible needs to be the Voldemort word. It needs to be never mentioned in your vocabulary. You want to look at your goals, whether it be your business, your relationships, your standards, your motorcycle collection, and just go, hey, I'm going to go for stupid. What do I want? And just allow yourself to be that child that dreams and plays outside of the parameters that the rest of the planet try to put us in.
4: Yeah, you do sort of start with that, I think, as a child, and then it gets beaten out of you.
3: Oh God, we've all got we've all got kids that are like four, five, six years old now, running around with like a towel around their neck going, I'm a superhero. And as parents, we turn around and we go, oh, what superhero are you? And they go, well, I'm action lady or man or whatever. And you go, yes, you are. But the second they're doing that when they're nine, 10 and 11, we go, hey, act your age, grow up, you know? Behave what? Behave what is perceived as... Normal by society. Color within the box and all that kind of crap. But none of the people that we admire today, we mentioned them, Larry Page, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, none of these people colored within the box. None of these people could see a box. I want to do this. <clears throat> now it's done. So and we look at them and we if, if if Elon Musk suddenly turned around tomorrow and he said, Right, I'm gonna make the ocean drinkable water you know, which would solve all the droughts and all. You wouldn't discard it. No, I would believe it. Of course you would, because he's got a proven record. But if your mate, if your neighbor, if anyone at the table with us at the bike shed had mentioned that, you may have turned around and gone, well, what do you know? Don't be ridiculous. (laughs) But if you look at Elon, he knew nothing about banking and he disrupted the industry with PayPal. He knew nothing about solar systems solar city he knew nothing about batteries tesla knew nothing about space and now he's partnered with nasa so don't allow your qualifications to get in the way of your achievement
4: interesting very interesting i like it um so you ended up speaking at the pentagon as well of all places
3: yeah yeah that was uh, that was fun <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's right up there.
3: Yeah. Oh, I've sp- and it's funny. It does make me giggle because, um, as I say, I left school at the age of 15, didn't go to college, <laughs> and there I am speaking at Harvard, Stanford, and then uh, the Pentagon. So it's always been a bit of a giggle. But the Pentagon was for um, three-star generals leaving military service into civilian life and looking at potential opp- uh, entrepreneurial journeys. And I was able to speak up. There were some rather powerful people, but that was quite fun getting a day led around by journal, uh, generals in the Pentagon. They only they, It was going to be a series apparently, but they only did it once. So we're the only crew that ever did it actually in the Pentagon. It was quite, That's quite impressive.
4: That is impressive.
3: Yeah, that was, uh, I had to go through background checks and everything. Because at the time I wasn't American. I still had the green card Um Luckily, I got through that and uh, was was able and invited to do it.
4: That's awesome. Very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) So you're now full time coaching. um, Is this for personal
3: clients or businesses or do you cover both? So I, I don't do much of the concierge stuff anymore. I did that for like 25 years um and so you know the first book did me very well i speak literally all over the planet i've done japan thailand uh, switzerland all over the, the world um in fact i'm speaking again as we mentioned down in san diego tomorrow then a week later i'm in seattle then two weeks after that i'm in dallas texas so i do a lot of speaking training and coaching for sales groups entrepreneurial groups on how to basically get more impact and focus out of their teams. So it's it's really given me a new chapter of my life. I've been able to take everything I learned from the most powerful people in the planet and install that into a person in order to get them to start going above and beyond what they thought was achievable. So it's my full-time job now. What a job it is.
4: <laughs> it's a very powerful thing that you've got there, that you you've nurtured, shall we say. It's, it's no easy thing to be able to share, actually, and teach other people as well, because, as you say, you're trying to change
3: their thought process in this case. And that's, that's the thing. One, I am very, when, when Blue Fishing came out, I thought, well, Simon used to paid me a ridiculous amount of money to actually do the book. And I <laughs> couldn't believe that. <laughs> that would that. be enticing. <laughs> yeah, that was enticing. And I thought to myself, no one's going to buy this book. And I was looking through all the like small print. Do I have to give the money back? You know, all this kind of stuff. Thinking, uh, maybe my mama buy a copy. But other than that, no one will. Um, because it was just simple, basic stuff to create impact and relationships. But I suddenly realized very quickly when the book was flying off the shelves, was that people weren't doing what they should do. And we were ignoring the simple stuff. And, of course, that book did really, really well and, of course, launched me. And then this latest book, Go For Stupid, is really a direct demand to get people to not listen to the small players, to not listen to the voices. There's a lot of people out there that will never buy anything from you, but they're very noisy. And they're the ones that will, for no reason, just jump on your Instagram and just, just shout at you because they don't like the color of your beard or, mm-hmm. you know, what you're drinking I had someone send me a, a barrage of abuse um, because I, on all of my social profiles, I've and I'm at Steve D. Sims everywhere, same social profile anywhere. Yes. Every single one of them, I got a glass of whiskey in my hand. I got an old-fashioned because I like old fashions. And this guy came at me. And I don't know what had gone wrong the night before for him, but he came at me in LinkedIn saying, why was I so disrespectful to have a glass of alcohol on a business platform? Wow. And I was like, well, what do you mean? This is me. This is what I like to do. I'm in a black t-shirt. I've got my old fashioned. Why why do I have to pretend to be somebody I'm not? He just went absolutely flip out that I was actually having a whiskey on LinkedIn. And there was no way of getting, my wife always says, you should just let it go, but I can't. I love to jump People are
4: very brave from behind the keyboards.
3: Oh, they always are. But it just makes me giggle how people have these opinions. And you wonder where they came from. But at the end of the day, you know, play with it like a little, you know, like a little dog and then just like walk away. That's what (laughs) I did. Gave him some feedback of your own. <laughs> I did. I did. I played. I, I and and you get a lot of times. Like I have people saying to me, how do how do you sleep with yourself when you're kind of you know you're you're working for these billionaires? And I'm like actually very fine. Thank you very much for asking. <laughs> so it's just it's just comical how people do like to yell. And those people that are yelling at you nine times out of ten can't afford you.
4: And I wonder if it's some sort of self protection. People stay in their boxes. They they'll often say, you know, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be like, do what you're doing and that type of thing. Um, And they don't sort of give themselves permission to be that free, if you like.
3: If you ask anyone, what would they like to do? And you ask them a very enthusiastic, hey, you know, what would you like to do if you could do anything in the world? They'll tell you what they want to do in maybe two seconds and then spend another 30 seconds Telling you why that could never happen. I'd love to play piano without John, but I don't really know how to play piano. Well, I don't know how to get hold of They talk themselves out of it. And that comes back to the fact that you've got to get you on board with you. And now the amount of things that I've done throughout my life, I have no doubters in my head. You know, I am completely focused on, right, here we go. Let's do this. And if you do get a bit of doubt, start asking yourself, well, why can't it be done? Why shouldn't it be me? And actually start to reframe that negativity. And and that's what gets you through. But nine times out of 10, we are our biggest hurdle and obstacle. And I find that everywhere we go. And there was never anything better than an affluent client coming to me and going, hey, I'd like to do this, but I know it's impossible. There was nothing better than that, because I'll be like, oh well yeah it probably is but let me see what and then we would just walk away and laugh at him, because that's what we that's what we worked on because we we never recognized it yeah that's interesting you
4: sort of then start stepping sideways into okay it's, it's ridiculous but we're going to do it
3: and that's what you do you sh- you start asking yourself what's stupid and ridiculous and, and what's gonna what's laughable And you end up achieving these ideas and then all you've got to do, you've got the idea, you've got the vision, you can see what you want to do. Right. Now what's the first step I've got to do in order to get to that?
4: Yeah. Interesting. I said relaxing earlier, but it sounds like it's a lot of fun, the way you think, the way you process what would be problems to most people.
3: Yeah. I like, I like challenging people to look at things differently, reframe things differently. And I like people to be able to achieve. And you know, I'm, 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 I'm very happy and, you know, comfortable little lad here. So, but I want to challenge people to do more. Now I spent 25 plus years spending billionaires money to give them more interesting cocktail stories. Now I want to pass that information to my clients, both in, you know, our media, within our coaching world to get them into a position where they can make their choices, where they can create their impact. And it's, it's greatly fulfilling.
4: I bet and now, obviously, when you started off, you didn't have all these channels of communication. Nowadays, everybody can get hold of your information, for instance. As you say, there's a variety of Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn.
3: Oh, there's, lo- there's loads. I spoke to a friend of mine the other day who um, is, is, a, is a great knowledge source in the world of social. And he told me that there was over 3,000 social platforms in the planet, of which most people only know five. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Three thousand.
3: Yeah, every day there's a new, and, and I get it a lot. I I got one this morning, um, a new business online uh, community. You know, join today. You know, and it'll probably be bust by Friday. But they're constantly trying to build up these new social platforms. Some come, some. You know, if you remember, um, when uh we had uh, Parler, uh recently we had um TikTok was under uh, attack at the time by being closed down because of ties to China. And there was another one that came out called Triller, you know? So there's always these different brands coming out. Um, it's part of our job to actually know which ones come out and start getting some momentum. But you see more often than not, they just come out and then they just fade away.
4: They just disappear. They're gone. Yes. We favor MeWe. That's
3: that's a, a really good one to be on. That, that's a, Again, that I guarantee there's a lot of people out there now that go, MeWe, never heard of it. But it's, Never heard of it. it's Me one mean, of the largest yeah, in the planet.
4: It is. And there are no algorithms. You can actually say what you're thinking and it gets out there.
1: Yep.
3: So, yep.
4: yeah, look it up on there. <laughs> and there's just less noise. Um, what are you riding at the moment?
3: Ooh, what am I riding at the moment? Um, so,
4: I mean, I don't know if you have several motorcycles or if you're still oh, I do. You know, I'm using the one you love.
3: Um, I'm, I'm really good at buying bikes. I'm really bad at selling them. Um, I, <laughs> I've got a, you know, living here in California, I've got my, my glide, uh, I've got a road glide special all tweaked up and too much Lovely. money thrown into it. But, you know, if are heading down to San Diego, that thing's just like a, a, a sofa on steroids. So Beautiful. I'll be hurtling down the, uh, the, the highway to four Oh five on that tomorrow. Um, I've got a diner, which is a typical sons of anarchy granny scarer. That's great fun. <laughs> um, I've got a 1975, uh, commando, um, fully restored that I use for the distinguished gentleman's ride. And, you know, just enjoying putt-putting around Mulholland. Um, I bought an MH, uh, 900, a Hailwood, an original 1985 Hailwood Mini. Oh, wow. That's
4: unusual.
3: Yeah. I, I, as a kid, I'd always seen these big fairing bikes and I'd always loved the Hailwood, um, And then luckily I managed to get one out of a museum once. Um, And here's the funny thing. It had never been registered. It had never had gas in the tank. And it had 16 kilometers on the, on the uh, speedo from just being pushed around different museums in and out of factories and stuff like that.
4: Wow. That's a fine. Yeah.
3: I got that and we flushed it out. We stripped it down and I've actually raced that at race tracks on vintage events. So, you know, I, I don't have any garage princesses. My bikes get ridden. I got a 75, a 765 Moto2 Triumph Daytona. Um, And uh, I did have a Ducati V4R, but I wanted to live. So I I sold that because it (laughs) scared the bejeebus out of me. Terrifying motorcycle. And I've just ended up buying, um, same as Tony Ellis, I've got um, the MV Augusta Super Veloce uh, 800, which has all been torn down. and is now my track bike. So I mean, I'm enjoying a, a few variety bikes there.
4: Yeah, that is quite a variety.
3: Yeah. It's interesting. I've, I've got one for every yes. kind of period generation style. And that's the thing, you know, when I get a motorcycle and I, I, I frequently buy a bike, if there's another bike in my garage that provides me the same experience, then one's got to go. So how are you going to choose? Yeah, yeah. I, I had a I had a, um, the Norton naked and I had a Ducati Sport, the retro sport they did. Both of them were those retro calf racers, and both of them gave a very similar kind of feel. But the Norton was a bit more raw. So I sold the Ducati. So I never want to emulate the same kind of experience, but I'm very happy about buying new bikes.
4: Yeah, you've definitely got horses for courses. As you say, whatever you're doing that day, you've got a suitable...
3: Yeah, very interested (laughs) to see the world of electric come along. Very interested to see the new Ducati um, electric sport bikes in MotoGP. So, yeah, very interested to see the next year, how it goes. And you're seeing all of these brands pop up. Um, uh, Demon, Mission, uh, Lightning, the Harley one cake you're seeing so many brands you've never heard of before that are now suddenly getting into the electric motorcycle market so it's going to be very interesting to see what that looks like and of course triumph are very heavily into it as well so let's see what happens
4: yeah it's great to see all this development so do you work on your bikes yourself or not you didn't kind of go down that route
3: i do um and <laughs> so i have a, a, a friend a, a joint friend of ours tony um lives probably about 40 minutes away from me and he's a master mechanic um so the, the 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 standing joke in the house is that I won't work on the bike if I don't have a tony because 9 times out of 10 <laughs> I'll suddenly find that I'm left with extra parts once I've rebuilt something and then I have to phone up tony ship it off to him he pulls it apart and, and repairs it again but over the years I've got better you are like that bad surgeon we don't want to meet <laughs> oh 100% but i do i do like playing um and trying to do basic stuff you know let's be blunt on the on the old norton and on the harley davidsons or the the older harley davidson that's easier but the new bikes you've got to be a rocket science scientist with all the electronics in them
4: Yeah, it is a science. I know who you mean. It's Antonio Fortunato, isn't it? I know who you mean. Yeah, yeah,
3: that's the boy. He's magic. I try not to say his last name because I don't want anyone else using him because Tony's my boy.
4: (laughs) 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 And he's a busy boy, but he's fantastic.
3: He is is absolutely brilliant. And he would change. I remember when we've looked at other bikes, we'll look at a bike and then we'll quickly phone up Tony and go, right, can you work on this bike? And if he says, no, we're not going to buy that bike. You know, so we always make sure that we've got bikes that he can actually work on.
4: Excellent. I'm glad to hear you keep them all alive, that they're all running. You haven't got, as you say, princess.
3: There's no show princesses.
4: princesses.
3: No, no. With the last, the last big thing we did, we actually went up to the Ducati VIP day. And I nice. took up there the V4R and I took up there the Hailwood. Now, the idea was that I would throw the Hailwood around Laguna Seca a couple of times, and then I would get on the V4R and try and get the knee down and have some some great lap times. The Hailwood was so much fun going around this track that I did, I think, one session on the V4R, and my tires were just blistered up from this Hailwood because you've got to push it. You've got to have some fun. You've got to <laughs> see what it can do. And people just can't believe that there's this... There's this museum concourse quality hailwood being pushed into corners and down that corkscrew. But if you don't do it, then then why have the bikes? You gotta know what they do. Yeah, that's what it's made for. Oh, yeah, every single time.
4: Yeah. And do you ever go to the Goodwood events in England? Do you know? I um, haven't been the back Goodwood... there
3: for a while. I used to do the I used to go along and watch the hill climb, I'm desperate to get over and see the revival, but I haven't done that.
4: Yeah, the Revival is a big vintage event.
3: Yeah, I, lo- I love the vintage stuff. I've, I'm going to the big vintage thing up at um, Willow Springs in a couple of weeks' time, but uh, I love... Is
4: that a race, a vintage race? Yeah,
3: it, uh, I think they're calling it the uh, the classic GP. I only heard about it about a week ago. Uh, I'm not going to race there. I'm just going to go along and see what it's like. But when you're on a V4R and you're doing 180 mile an hour, um, it's scary, Achoo. but it's predictable. But when you're on like a Norton Manx or Triton, um, and you're doing eighty mile an hour, and there's no deer, uh, gear, um, no steering damper or anything like that, you're getting all the sensation, and I absolutely love it. I actually did a, a track day at Laguna Seca on a Triton, and this Triton's nought to sixty, I think was three days, um, and it was just ridiculous. I think at had a top speed of. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> 70, 80 miles an hour. But that was hilarious. And that was so much fun. And there were all these guys whizzing past me on their new sports bikes. But I had the best time. And I had such a smile on my face. <laughs> the character. Yeah, it was a Riding great a character. character. I loved it. I loved it. It's great. Glad you enjoy it so
4: much. I mean, motorcycling is a fantastic hobby sport. It's brilliant. anything on two wheels. We love to promote it. Well, um. I think we'll say goodbye there. We've had a great chat. I'm sure people will find you interesting. I'd love anybody to email in our emails at the bottom of the show notes with any uh, feedback.
3: <laughs> That's where they're going to abuse Positive me. Positive or negative. Yeah, here we go. We don't
4: care. We just we just like to hear what people think.
3: <laughs> I'll be watching awesome. those. Thank I'll you. be watching the comments.
4: <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Very much appreciated, Steve.
3: I've enjoyed the time. Thanks for having me on.
4: Cheerio. Bye.